Well, good morning. It is good to have you here. I just need to say right up front, um, I'm dealing with a little bit of a severe cold today. In fact, one of the ladies in our small group this morning asked me how I was feeling. I said, I don't feel very good. And she said, well, you don't look very good. (laughs) Which may mean I may not preach very good as well. So I'm asking for some grace. And also anything that was way out of lines theologically, just know that's cold medication. It's not my really beliefs. I'll fix it next week. This last week, I've had multiple people talk to me and others on our staff and ask the question, as far as the tragedies in Houston and the Hurricane Harvey, what, what is the church doing? What has the church do? What is the church going to do? And whenever I hear a question like that of what is the church or what has the church done, uh, there's always my knee-jerk reaction that wants to say, well, you can answer part of that question by looking in the mirror and asking yourself, what have you done or what are you doing? Because the church is, it's you and me. And, uh, and so part of that question you can answer for yourself uh, to know what the church has done by what you have done. But I know the, the heart that that question comes from is what are, what are we collectively doing as Cornwall Church? And I wanted to let you know a little bit about that um, because we are involved with that. As most of you are aware, every year at our Easter services, we take an offering as we do every weekend. But on Easter weekend, we ask people to dig deep, ask people I've never given before to give. We ask visitors to give like, they, you know, like they're never coming back or whatever. And we have a commitment <clears throat> that every single penny of the Easter offering we give away. None of it is kept for our ministries here at this church. It doesn't pay for any salaries, any bills, any ministries here. We give 100% of that Easter offering away. It's something we've done for seven or eight years. And this year, because some of those funds had not yet fully been distributed, we were able this week uh, to designate and send $10,000 from the Easter offering to help with the, the relief efforts, yeah, in, in Houston. <clears throat> Excuse me, and I wanted to take just a minute this morning to tell you about in this situation where we gave and why we gave, uh, because it's a little bit unique. And as I share this, I want you to know that I'm in no way demeaning any, any relief organization, any humanitarian, humanitarian effort, any other kind of ministry or organization that's helping them. They're doing great things. But we decided to direct uh, these funds in a different manner on this crisis. Uh, I have a very good friend, Patrick Kelly, who's a pastor of a church in southwest Houston, a church about probably about double our size on three uh, campuses in the southwest suburbs of Houston. And I texted him just to see how he was doing and what they were doing. He says, you know, it's, it's a tragedy, but God is working even through our church. And so I went on their website and saw that they were involved. I mean, like boots on the ground involved as a church. <clears throat> so he got me in contact with... Um, with his, what we would call, go and be pastor, the one that does community care. And I asked, if we gave a donation of $10,000, would you be able to utilize it responsibly? And, and he said, yes, absolutely. And let me tell you why we did that as opposed to going with some other organizations on this one. Three reasons, really. First of all, because this church has their staff and all their overhead paid for by their offerings, 100% of our donation goes directly to the relief efforts in Houston. So, and, and listen, I'm not saying that, that humanitarian uh, organizations and 501c3 shouldn't have administrators and, and, and staff and overhead. Th- that's required. I understand that, and I'm not against that at all. But in this case, the staff is already paid by the church, so every penny of the $10,000 goes directly to those who are in need. And so we thought that'd be a really cool thing on this one. The second reason is because long after the floodwaters have resided, 
And long after uh, all of the other humanitarian organizations have left, when FEMA has left and the Red Cross has left and everyone has left, this church remains. And there can be relationships that are, that are built so that six months from now, five years from now, when someone is going through a crisis, when someone is looking for some spiritual truth, when someone is needing something in their life, they can think back, remember that church that helped us during the flood? Maybe I ought to check that out. And so there's this relationship that is built between the church and the people in their community that when other people have left, the church is still there. And we thought, what a great investment to help out with this church so that God could do some work even long after the effects of this hurricane are taken care of. And the third reason is, and again, this is not in any way to uh, downplay the, the efforts that other, other organizations are doing, is that because it's the church, they do this in the name of Jesus. It's not just another humanitarian effort. And our vision, as Pastor Kip just shared, is, is to alter the spiritual landscape one life at a time through Jesus. And that this, we believe, allows the church to be seen as the church and to be able to operate and, uh, and to do this in the name of Jesus. And so we believe that that is a kingdom win to let the church be the church in Houston. So we decided uh, to, to partner with River Point Church on that. Now, that's what we collectively have done. And some of you are already in your mind, you're going, whew. That lets me off the hook because I gave it Easter, so I'm good. Well, maybe, maybe not. Uh, we do um, want for you to be sensitive to the promptings of the Holy Spirit in your own life. Some of you have been involved, and there is no lack of ways that you can contribute and be a part of this. Absolutely. I mean, if you watch the Hawks game on Thursday, I mean, even Michael Bennett has an organization. There's plenty of organizations. But I just wanted to, for some of you are saying, well, I, I want to give in, in a way that I know that the funds are directed there. Let me just give you three options. These aren't the only good ones. One is this River Point Church that we've been a part of uh, in this deal. And if you want to give through them, you can do that with, uh, with this website. You need to write that down because it's not, I think we might have it on our, on our um, social media this week. But, um, <clears throat> excuse me, that's who we're working with here. Another organization with great integrity is Samaritan's Purse and helps out in, in these kind of situations and others throughout the world all year long. We, we really trust Samaritan's Purse. And then Convoy of Hope is another one. Again, this is not to say any of the other organizations aren't good. They're great, whatever. But these are just some that you say, where could I give? These are some of the areas where you can give. So I just want to let you know what we collectively have done and then encourage you as a follower of Christ to continue to listen to the Holy Spirit and what would he prompt you to do as a part of this uh, effort in making a difference in this world. I wonder if right now we could just take a moment and together agree in prayer uh, for the situation there. And Father, we do uh, lift up um, others in our nation that are dealing with uh, just unthinkable um, destruction and disaster. It's, it's hard to imagine having lost everything. And so we pray, God, in these moments when, when in crisis and tragedy, when sometimes the the very west, worst of, of humanity is brought out and the very best of humanity is brought out, that at this season, in this uh, situation, that the body of Christ would shine the light of Jesus Christ. Uh, God, that, that the churches um, would really step up. And God, we pray for River Point uh, this morning, as well as the other churches and other organizations that are there with boots on the ground helping out. Pray that you would, you would minister uh, through them. And Father, not just for the immediate need, but the ongoing need and the ultimate need uh, spiritually as well. God, we pray that, that in the midst of all this, while it's hard for us to understand, we know as we've been studying Romans that you cause all things to work together for good to those who love you and are called according to your purpose. And that somehow you would bring good out of this. You would redeem this for your glory. 
And we pray it in your name. Amen. Amen. Well, it is good to have you here, and those of you in Skagit, good to have you joining us as well. Our hearts go out to you. This week has been a week where we celebrate with Dave Browning as he is with Jesus this week, but we know that this is a huge impact on the valley and and the, the Christ the King community, not only in the valley, but even up here in the impact that he's had for many, many decades. So our hearts are with you. Those of you in Boca Raton at Trinity Church of God, uh, glad that you're with us as well. It was uh, 14 weeks ago that we started this journey in the book of Romans. And early on in the series, I talked about a trip that we had taken to Rome in 2012, uh, five years ago. And in that, that, that trip to Rome, we saw some of these must-see sites. We saw this, this incredible city that has not only been such a huge and significant city in human history with the Roman Empire and all of that, but it's been a huge and significant city in Christendom as it became the seat of the Holy Church for many, many years and the, and the Vatican now even to this day. And as we went through for those days there in Rome, we saw these sites and we realized there's so much more that we missed. And as we were leaving Rome, every single one of us was saddened that, that, that we couldn't spend more time there. And yet our hearts had been enriched. We had memories, we had pictures, and it was wonderful. And as I mentioned, one of the must-see sites was, was the Trevi Fountain. And when we were there, uh, we did, as, as is tradition, to take a coin in your right hand and throw it over your left shoulder into the fountain in, short, in a way to ensure that you will return back to Rome. I know it's a little superstitious and whatever. It's just kind of, we're just going with it, right? And, uh, and so today, as we come out of this series in Rome, in Romans, I believe that maybe there's some similarities in that this book is one of the most significant books in all of, uh, all of Holy Scripture, this document, this letter with its deep, rich theology. And many of us are saying, oh, we're leaving far too soon, even with the 14 weeks. We've only been able to touch down on the highlights. There's so much that we've missed. And as we leave this series today, we go away with a, a bit of a sadness, but hopefully we go away richer in our theology and our understanding in our memories of this book. And, and for those of you who are in Bible Study Fellowship, I'm so excited for you as you start a nine-month in-depth study on that this year uh, in Bible Study Fellowship. But I pray that today, as we end this series, that you will kind of symbolically take the coin in your right hand and throw it over your left shoulder, not literally. We don't want anyone to have their eyes poked out with a quarter today. Don't throw money around. Symbolically, as a way to say, I will come back to this book because you can never exhaust the depth of the truth and the riches of the wisdom of God found in this book and that you would come back to it again and again and again. You would revisit the highlights that have been so wonderful and significant. You will visit the places we didn't have time to delve into and that for the rest of your life, this book will transform your life just as it has transformed the trajectory of all Christianity even back to the days of Martin Luther 500 years ago. Now, one more thing as we exit this series, one more resource I want you to be aware of and I I would love for you to take advantage of is that as we leave, if you would take some time to get a, a very concise and creative overview and review of the book of Romans. There's a website called um, The Bible Project. I think I put this in the link, thebibleproject.com. If you go to Explore Romans, they have put together these two videos, part one, part two. It will take you 16 minutes, but I guarantee you, if you've been uh, enjoying this study in the book of Romans, it will be 16 minutes that are well invested. I'm asking you not to watch it during the next 30 minutes but maybe this afternoon or this evening or this week that you would go to this website, watch these two videos, and it will give you a really creative, concise overview of the entire book, the, the, the flow of the book, the, the themes, the theology in it. Fantastic job. I think I introduced you to, to these guys when we studied Hebrews. Amazing stuff there. So check that out. That would be great. But today, 
we come down to the last two chapters of this letter. In chapters uh, 15 and 16, chapter 16 is where he's kind of signing off, and he says, you know, send my greetings to about 26 different people. We won't spend a lot of time in there, although there's some really cool stories in there. And there's a little bit of, a, a little bit of a, um, an instruction to the church, and then at the end there's a, a benediction that we'll, we'll hit right at the very end. But as he comes to the end of this letter, and you can imagine Tertius, his, his scribe, going, you know, finally, you know, Writer's cramp going on, calluses on his fingers from writing all this stuff out as, as Paul just spews it out. Paul kind of reviews some things, and he, and he says this in Romans chapter uh, 15. He says, I have written you quite boldly on some points, as if to remind you of them again. Because of the grace of God, grace God gave me to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles with the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God. This grace of God is a theme that we see all the way through the book. It's what we sang about today, that it's all of it is because of God's grace. And he recognizes that this grace of God is what has called him to be a minister. And not only that, as, as he's just overwhelmed by God's goodness, this unmerited favor, this undeserved gift to be able to be a minister, that this ministry that he has been given to gives him this priestly duty of taking the gospel to the Gentiles, a priestly duty, this, this high, high calling to stand between God and the people. And he's gripped by the seriousness of it when he says it's a priestly duty, that I don't take this lightly, that, that there's heaven and earth and, and, and eternity hanging the balance on the message of the gospel. And I get to take it, not to my own people, I get to take it, I've been hand-selected, I've been consecrated, I've been chosen, set apart for God's purposes to take it to the Gentiles, which is really good news for us. He says to speak this, this gospel of God. Now, from the beginning, we said that another way, and actually a literal translation of the word gospel, is good news. And here it is, concise, is that the good news is that there is a righteousness, a right standing with God, a, a good enough for God. There's a little quiz coming up in a real big time, a real hurry, okay? There's a right standing with God. There's a, a good enough for God that comes. It comes from God, not from us. And it's by faith, not by anything we've done. It's by what Jesus has done and God offers it. And the epicenter of this entire document are these verses in Romans 1, 16 and 17 that from that ripple out the rest of the letter. Again, let's, let's come back to it. I am not ashamed of the gospel, this good news, because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. And this gospel that he spent 16 chapters just expounding upon, this good news of this righteousness that is from God and it is by faith, he says that this gospel, this, this righteousness, this, this gospel, it, it brings with it, it carries with it a privilege and a responsibility. That there's this gift from God that we have now this new, stand, new standing with God, that we have had credited to our account the very righteousness of Jesus. He has declared that we are righteous with his righteousness, not with our own. And not only that, but now we have this new status in his family, that especially us as Gentiles, we've been these wild olive shoots that have been grafted in these engrafted in, in branches that get to be a part of the family tree of God, all by his grace is this privilege to be able to be right with God, not because of what we've done, and to be called his sons and his daughters. And he says, and there's a responsibility that comes with that, 
That now there's this new standard, this new way of living, that the gospel isn't just something we believe, it's something that changes our life, not in a way to try to earn it, not in a way to try to deserve it, but in response out of gratitude for the grace that God has just lavished on us, that we would say, why would we live any other way now that we've been called the righteousness of Christ and included in the family? We want to live and reflect the one who has done this for us. And Paul is very clear on this, that this letter is not just about theology. Remember we talked about how uh, in chapter 11 that, that the theology leads to doxology. It leads to this glory statement. When you have really good theology, it leads you to worship God because you understand how great and amazing God is. But it doesn't just end there. That it needs to impact our biography, our life, the way we live, the way we do our relationships, our priorities, all of that. And without dichotomy, not just to say we believe one thing and behave differently. So at the end of this letter, he takes all of this theology and he gets incredibly practical with the application. And last weekend, and Pastor Brian did such a great job last weekend uh, looking at Romans 12, 13, and 14, but he starts talking about these practical applications, especially in the areas of relationships. Because remember in the church, there were, there were followers who were, who were Jewish and there were followers who were Gentiles, and there was a lot of differences in that, um, especially in areas like some of the the Levitical laws and the dietary laws and the days of celebration and the festivals, and there is all of this difference. And I think what Paul is saying, listen, there are some truth things that we must stand firm on. There's some doctrine that we've got to hold to the truth on. But there are other things that are matters of opinion, matters of preference, and you can discuss those things. You can even disagree with those things. But on those areas that are not, that are not, you know, I mean, what he refers to as disputable matters that, that aren't like matters of life and death and salvation and eternity, on those matters, discuss them fine. Disagree fine. Do not argue, he says. Don't argue, and especially don't judge others if they have a different opinion than you on some of these things, if they have a different preference or a different, the different convictions on some of these things. Don't argue about them. And then he says, this is what I want you to do. And I want to backtrack just for one verse into chapter 14. Because this verse is so packed. We could spend the whole, uh, the whole day on this verse. If we would live this verse, it would be revolutionary in our life, in our families, in our world. Uh, it would change everything. Romans 14, 19, he says, let us, those of us who have been redeemed, who have been justified, who are being, who are being sanctified, who are living in the power of the Spirit, let us therefore, and in the context, if you read it, he's saying there's things more important than just your opinion and your preference on some of these things. Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Now I just want to ask you a question. In our political world right now, in our world, in our country right now, on Facebook right now, is this how everyone operates? To make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. We live right now in such a time, even in our country, in our world, but in our country, such a time of divisiveness, such a time of hatred, such a time of, of slamming and slander, whether it be racial or ethnic, whether it be social, economic, whether it be political, there's these sides taken and these, these, these uh, accusations and these verbal scuds launched and all these things. And what if, what if just the followers of Jesus in the United States would live this way, would operate this way, would post on Facebook this way? What, what if just those of us in this room would live this way? What about if just the follower of Jesus who lives in this skin would operate this way? 
to make every effort, not just a, a half-hearted little, you know, toss a little bit of, of, of interest this way or just to avoid others, but to intentionally make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification, how that would change our world, how that would change how we speak to one another, how that would change how we interact. And he says, this is what, this is what the gospel does. It not only saves your soul, it transforms your life. And so we who have been uh, justified in Christ are to live this out in the way that we interact with other people. And it's an, an amazing thing as he just continues on in, into this. Uh, there's a theme that, that he, uh, two themes that he hits really big at the very end of this book. And one is the theme of, of unity in the church and a mission in the world, which I find interesting because if you've ever read John 17, and we studied this a couple years ago, the high priestly prayer of Jesus, he has this theme in this prayer, unity in the church and a mission in the world. So with that said, if you have your Bible, uh, we're going to pick up in uh, Romans chapter 15, and we're going to look at a couple of verses, and then uh, I may give you some stuff that just in, in, the, in the chapter that's just, I think is just really cool. But these first couple of verses, again, on the surface seem so simple, yet are so profound. They are world changers in our lives and in our world if we would live these things out. And they, while they look simple, the only way that we can live these truths out is with the power of the Holy Spirit at work within us because it's counterintuitive. It goes counter to our whole uh, makeup and our understanding. This is the new self regenerated to be like Christ and only in the power of the Holy Spirit can we live this out. So in Romans 15, he starts off saying, we who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Now, with that, Again, in the context, he's talking about some different convictions in the church. But what if it's beyond that? And it's real easy in this verse to get hung up on the word strong and weak. Because it feels like, well, you know, I don't know if I'm strong. And boy, who am I to say someone else is weak? And that seems judgmental. What if we didn't get hung up on these words? What if we took the words out? And what if we just said, you know, we who are justified by Christ, we who are redeemed, we who are followers of Jesus, ought to bear with the failings of others and not to please ourselves. I don't know about the people in your home, in your workplace, in your neighborhood, sitting next to you right now, but maybe there's some that kind of fall short sometimes, maybe have some failings. One person. The rest of you, this is easy. <laughs> the rest of you, it's not a problem because your people are just perfect all the time. There are people in our lives that, that, that fall short, and he says, listen, this is how I want you to operate. Remember, not like everybody else. I don't want you to be conformed to the patterns of this world. You're transformed. You're different people. You're the followers of Jesus. You've been infused with the Holy Spirit's power, and I want you to bear with the failings of those who are around you. And I wonder, too, I mean, there's obviously this interpersonal thing, but I wonder if, if it's even talking the next ring out of just how we operate in our world and culture. Remember the context of who he's writing to. He's writing to followers of Jesus in Rome. And in Rome, women, children, Slaves, foreigners, they were all seen as lesser individuals. They were to be, uh, they, were, they were very vulnerable, and they were to be used, at times abused, leveraged, for someone who's stronger for their purposes and for their pleasure. He says, that's the way your world operates, but that's not how it operates in the body of Christ. It's not about pleasing yourself anymore. Remember we talked about find out how you please the Lord, and he says, now I want you to find out how you please other people. 
Love God and love others. That's the whole, that's the whole message of Jesus. And I wonder... I wonder if in this outer circle, of not just in the church, but in the world, I wonder if Paul thinks about other verses from Scripture. Paul would have been very versed in what we refer to as the Old Testament, very versed in, in the laws and the prophets and in the wisdom literature. And I wonder if in his mind there's a verse out of Proverbs 31. Now, some of you are familiar with Proverbs 31. It's like the Proverbs 31 woman. They're always talking about the Proverbs 31 woman. If you're a woman and you've never read Proverbs 31, don't. All right, because no one lives up to that. Anyway, before it gets to the, now you know I'm joking when I tell you not to read the Bible, right? <clears throat> before it gets to that virtuous woman thing, uh, there's some, some verses before that where Lemuel is saying, hey, these are things that my mom taught me. And maybe he's kind of talking about his mom, but he's, so my mom taught me these things. And I wonder if Paul's referring back to that in Proverbs 31 where it says, speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, for the rights of all who are destitute. Speak up and judge fairly. <clears throat> Defend the rights of the poor and the needy. These people lived in a world where people who didn't have a voice didn't have a say. Or people who were vulnerable were abused. And he says, not so with you. Because you're a reflection of your father. And he has always been the father to the fatherless, the defender of widows, the advocate for the aliens. That's what I want you to reflect, your father. And to care for those and to help those and to listen to and speak up for those who don't have a say. That this community of followers of Jesus would not just believe right, but would behave right and it would impact the world. And then he gets really, really personal. In verse 2, he says this. And each of us, each of us gets really specific, really personal on this one. Each of us should please his neighbor. Because the easy thing for us to default to and I referred to this earlier when we talked about even Hurricane Harvey, the easy thing for us to default to is to say, someone should do something. Somebody ought to do something. The church, the government, well, I mean, it's really easy to say, and, and they should, maybe they should, that's fine. But it's easy to take the onus off of us if we can deflect it and say, it's their fault. It's their responsibility. Now, the politicians should do something about this, and maybe they should, that's fine. The president should do something, and maybe he should. The pastors, and maybe uh, the pope, anything that starts with a P, my parents, you know, anything. They should do something, and maybe they should. But he says, instead of worrying about what they should do, each one of us has a responsibility. What are we doing? What am I doing? And he says, listen, as, as an individual who's been redeemed by Christ, in view of God's mercy, each one of us should please his neighbor. Now, if you give me... Um, a little bit of a grace period here because I want to go down a bit of a rabbit trail on this word neighbor. Because the word neighbor is found throughout Scripture and it has deep, deep roots and, and a lot of meaning in Scripture. In fact, the word neighbor, um, and maybe what Paul is referring to here, traces its roots clear back to the law of Moses. And the law of Moses, there's, uh, you know, 613 laws and rules and all this stuff. But there's a section, there's a chapter, really interesting, a chapter in, in the law of Moses that people will use as their weapon, their battering ram to build a case for or against certain issues. And it's a very, very famous, there are very famous verses out of this chapter. And people will say, you know, but the Bible says this, and they come against 
body piercing and tattooing and homosexual practices. And then the other side says, yeah, but it also says this. So if you're going to throw that out. And they build their case on this one chapter. And they get so hot and so heated and so animated and so um, mean that they forget the most important verse in this entire chapter. In Leviticus chapter 19, the law of Moses says, do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against one of your people, but love your, here it is, your neighbor as yourself. And this is important. Come a little postscript saying, this isn't just a suggestion we got off of uh, Instagram. This is the word of Yahweh. I'm the Lord telling you. This is what's so important. Now you fast forward 14, 1500 years later. And here's where I'm asking you to give me uh, some, a chance to, uh, to speculate. Not biblical, but biblical. And we've talked about this before. So in Matthew chapter 22, Jesus is there, and the Sadducees, this religious group, the Sadducees have tried to trick him. And, and he comes back, <clears throat> and they are unsuccessful. So in response, the Pharisees say, we're going to try and trick him as well. And in Matthew 22, it says that the Pharisees send in an expert of the law. Here's the speculation. We've talked about this before. Here's the speculation. If a group of Pharisees is going to send someone in to trick Jesus, they're probably going to send their best candidate. They're going to send their, their one that has the best chance of, of tripping him up. And could it be? Because there was this, this Pharisee named Saul of Tarsus who was like the, the head of his class. He was tra trained under Gamaliel. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He was, as far as the, the law, he was an expert, and he was meticulous, and he was perfection in its, in its legalism. Could it have been that they send this young Saul of Tarsus, and he goes, and in, in Matthew 22, now we're back onto the Bible part, this expert in the law comes and, and says to Jesus, you know, um, what's the most important command? And Jesus says to him, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind and strength. And the second is like it. And he quotes Leviticus 19. Love your neighbor as yourself. Okay. Fast forward. There's another time when an expert in law, and could it be the same? Could it be Saul of Tarsus? Comes back to test Jesus again. And this time he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus throws the question back on him and says, how do you read it? This is why I think it could be the same guy. Because now he gives Jesus, Jesus' answer. This is how I read it. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says, great, you've done well. What if, what if that was Saul of Tarsus, having these interactions with Jesus? And Saul doesn't stop, or excuse me, the expert in the law doesn't stop there. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? To which Jesus goes into a very, very familiar story of the Good Samaritan, which in his listeners' minds would have been an absolute oxymoron. There was nothing good in their minds about a Samaritan. And yet Jesus said, listen, this is who your neighbor is. And I wonder if, if, if that was Saul, that now years later, as he's talking and he's writing this out, or he's, he's speaking this as Tertius is taking this down for this church in Rome, he says, I want you. I want you to think about your neighbor. I want you to love your neighbor. It goes clear back to Leviticus. It goes back to my interactions with Jesus. And what's really clear, when Jesus talks about neighbor, it, and when the Bible talks about neighbor, it is well beyond my next door. Neighbor is not about a proximity. Neighbor is not even about an affinity. Neighbor is not even about a preference. Neighbor goes far beyond that. 
Neighbor uh, transcends distance. Our neighbors transcends our differences. Neighbors transcends our belief. Neighbors transcends our religious standing or, or, or any of that. Those people in Houston are our neighbors. People throughout our world are our neighbors. And, and, and he says, here's what I want you to do. You know, I want you to go clear back to Leviticus and all the way through and think about how you, how you treat your neighbors. And there's a goal in all of this. And he says that you should please your neighbor for his good to build him up. That's what the result ought to be. Someone else has good in their life and they're built up. A little question. How many of you, just show of hands, you won't be held accountable for this, but how many of you would say you're morning people? Yeah, morning, you're, you're good to go. You, you've been up early this morning, okay. How many of you would say, no, nah, I'm not really a morning person? You're not even sure if you're awake yet, but you're here, so I'm grateful for that. For those of you who are saying, I'm not a morning person, I'm gonna come on your behalf right now. Little word for the wise on this whole thing of blessing your neighbor. In Proverbs, it says this, if a man loudly blesses his neighbor early in the morning, it will be taken as a curse. Just saying. That's just a little public service announcement for you right now, just so you know how to kind of live out this scripture and, and make your theology biography. All right, enough of that. <coughs> Excuse me. So Paul says, this is how we are to live, and he grounds it in the example of Jesus Christ. He said, Jesus is our example he didn't, he didn't think about what was pleasing to him. He didn't think about his rights. He gave all that up. He was selfless. And then he quotes about how, uh, he quotes the Psalms, then he talks about how Scripture is there for our encouragement and our endurance. And then in verse 5, he says this, May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you a spirit of unity among yourselves as you follow Christ Jesus, so that with one heart and mouth you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Follow Jesus, glorify God. And you see this again and again. Follow Jesus, glorify God. Follow Jesus, his example, and glorify God in so doing. In verse 7, he says, accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. Now, I think when he says this, accept one another, just as Christ accepted you, this really can be seen in two different ways and it answers two different questions. It answers the why question and the how question. Why should I accept someone? Because I can accept someone even if I don't agree with them. I can accept someone even if they have a lifestyle that is not something that I think is right. I can still accept them. I can accept someone. This doesn't mean throw away all boundaries, by the way. But he says, you can accept someone. Why? Because Christ accepted you. That's, that's the because of. But he says, here's how you should ex ex accept them. The same way Christ has accepted, just as in the same manner that Christ has accepted you, accept other people. And so I start thinking, how is it that Christ accepted me? Was it because I was so morally pure? Was it because I had all of my rough edges sanded off? Was it because I followed all the rules? Was it because I was completely righteous and all the darkness of my life was completely redeemed? Is that when Jesus accepted me? In Romans chapter 5, we studied, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You know when Jesus accepted me? <laughs> way before I was acceptable. He accepted me because I'm stamped on the image of God because of his love for me. And he says, the way that Christ has accepted you, I want you to accept others in that same manner, in that same way. Now again, you look at these, these truths just in that verse one, one, two, and seven. 
if we live this, and, and it takes the power of the Holy Spirit to live this way. That's the only way it can happen. You cannot do this in the flesh. The power of the Holy Spirit, it will change our lives. Now, real, real quick, in the next section, for those of you who've been going through this and studying this, um, we won't go into this in, in depth, but I think it's really cool, just on a, um, a Bible study level. He quotes Old Testament scriptures. And the, the, uh, the scriptures, the, the Hebrew scriptures, were broken into three parts. The law, the writings, and the prophets. The law, you know, the Torah. The writings would be things like, you know, the wisdom literature of Psalms, Proverbs, and such. And then the prophets. And he quotes one from each. As if to say, all throughout Scripture, this has been the case. And he talks about how these Gentiles are being a part of this family of God. And there's this progression. Again, this is just one of my little, I think it's kind of cool. So some of you can just check out. But there's this progression because the first verse he quotes says, talks about praising God among the Gentiles. Like you're kind of there, but they're not a part of it. And that the second one he quotes, he talks about the Gentiles are, they're, they're praising God with the rest. So they're kind of integrating. And the third one he says, together all the nations will praise God. That, that there's this progression of, yeah, they were the outsiders, they were the, the goats, as it were, amongst the sheep. And then they kind of start making their way in. And he's saying, listen, it's because of what Jesus has done, there's no difference between the Jews and the Gentiles. We're all unrighteous, we're all disobedient, and it's only because of God's mercy then in verse 12, and I told you we'd come back to this when we were talking about my Giacomani birch tree a couple, years ago, a couple weeks ago. Felt like a couple years ago, didn't it? He quotes Isaiah. The root of Jesse will spring up. Those of you who know your history, on the, your Old Testament history on this. Jesse was the father of David, and from the lineage of David would come the Messiah someday. So he's talking about Isaiah prophesied this was going to happen. That there would become this one that comes out of, out, of, out of Jesse's line. The root of Jesse will spring up. One who will rise to rule over the nations, uh, not just Israel, the nations, and the Gentiles will hope in him. He says, listen, for you Gentiles, your hope is not in the bloodline of Abraham. Your hope is not in the law. Your hope is not in circumcision. Your hope is not in the dietary keeping of, of the, you know, the rules or the festivals. Your hope is in Jesus Christ. That's where your hope is. And because of Jesus, you've been brought into the family. You've been engrafted into the branches. You're a part of it. And then we see uh, towards the <coughs> halfway point of this, uh, this chapter 15, this heart of Paul, that his desire is that everyone, everyone, would know this good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, of this righteousness that is from God. So in verse 20, he says, It has always been my ambition to preach the gospel, the good news, where Christ was not known, so that I would not be building on someone else's foundation. So you know what I want? I want to go where they've never even heard about Jesus. I want to go and I want them to experience this. I, I want them to know life. That's why he would go around and he would plant a church and get a, a body of believers going so you guys are good, you're set up. And then he would go and he'd do that again and travel all over Asia Minor. And you remember his goal is eventually to get to Spain. We don't know if he ever did. He says, I got to go to Jerusalem on my way. I want to stop in Rome, but I'm wanting to go to Spain because no one there even knows about Jesus. And then he quotes Isaiah. And listen, for us here at Cornwall Church in 2017, this is such an important verse. I pray that this becomes our heart again. He says this. Rather, as it is written, those who are not told about him will see, and those who have not heard will understand. That we live in a world, we live in a community where there are people who don't understand the good news of Jesus Christ. They might know religion. They might have been turned off by even Christianity. 
They might be completely, you know, averse to anything. Paul says, I want people who have not, uh, who've not been told about him to see. They haven't heard, but I want them to understand because I'm convinced it will change their lives. And for us as a church, my prayer for us as we move forward is that we won't be satisfied to just say, well, we're, we're comfortable here as a church. We're comfortable here and we're okay with bringing some others in from maybe some other churches that are struggling where the music's too loud or the preaching's not as good or whatever it might be. That we'd say, no, there are people who don't understand, they haven't seen, they haven't heard. You see, this, this fall, we're gonna do a very intentional thing, you'll hear more about it, this very intentional thing, because for all of us in, in the kingdom of God, it is very easy for us to get our little subculture world to be all with church people. And while there's some beauty in that, we can run the risk of losing any contact with people that Jesus came to die for. And we are called to engage, to build relationships, to build bridges, to, to talk with people, to understand, to accept them as Christ accepted us, to hear their story, to ask some questions. And it may come to the point where we get to share with them our story or, or answer some questions or invite them and their lives would be changed and they would be transformed. And Paul says, that's my heart. It's the heart of the church that others would find out about Jesus and know about him. All right, gets to chapter 16. He sends greetings to 26 people. You can read that on your own. There's, boy, that could be a whole series of all these different stories. Gives some instructions to the church, and he gets to the very end of the book. And, and he gets down there. Oh, I, I forgot, uh, forgot your blank, didn't I? It's cold medication. The gospel has always been for all people. The gospel has always been for all people. It was then, it is now. Today, you know, we've just entered into September. I hate to break this to you. There are 113 days before Christmas. <laughs> Some of you are so excited. Some of you are like, oh boy. If you've been around, our Christmas Eve services are a huge deal. There is a line out of the Christmas story, my favorite line out of the whole Christmas story. I say it every year on Christmas Eve. I'll say it again this Christmas Eve. My favorite line when the angel proclaims, this is good news of great joy that will be for all the people. That's the beauty of it. That's beautiful. Okay. So he gets to the end, and he does this other, uh, kind of another doxology. As he closes this thing out, he gives this glory statement, this benediction. And at the end of 16, he says, Now to him who is able to establish you by my gospel, this good news, and the proclamation of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past, but now, now it's been revealed, and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God, so that all nations might believe and obey him. Isn't that what Jesus said in the Great Commission? Go into all nations, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. He says this is the goal, that everybody, not just the Jews, everyone would believe and obey him. In the final line in the book, he says, to the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Now, you can read that and say, well, does that mean there's some other gods that aren't wise? Like the remedial divinity class, those who are more wisdom-challenged, those deities that are a little bit dumb. He says, no, 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 there's just one God. But remember in, 11, in chapter 11, where he says, oh, oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who, is, who, who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him. He says, you know what? God is so wise. 
And I think as he gets to the end of this letter, he just looks back and says, only the wisdom of God could put together something so absolutely amazing that we all have sinned. We've all disqualified ourselves, and yet there's a righteousness, not that we can come up with, but God gives it through his son, and he justifies us. And then his spirit sanctifies us, and we have this new life. And it's not just for the Jewish people, but it's for the Gentiles, and, and they're engrafted branches, and he does all this for his glory. And that the whole world would know, oh, the wisdom of God. To him be the glory forever through Jesus Christ. He's just, just so filled with this awe and amazement of this. And so as we come to the end of this book, my prayer is this, that the truths that we've looked at, that in the future as you continue in coming back to the familiar scriptures and digging deep into the ones that aren't so familiar, that this message of Romans, it would liberate us. It would bring this, this freedom to, to live in the grace and the mercy that it's the righteousness that is from God and by faith. It's what Jesus has done, not by us. That we wouldn't be bound with this, this burden. I've got to try and earn my way to God. That we would have liberation. We'd be free to walk in the grace of God. But it would, freedom would bring us this transformation to surrender and submit to the sanctification, the, the, the transforming power of the Holy Spirit to walk in step that our theology would become our biography. And we would be gripped with a conviction that this is good news for all the people not just the people in the world, but the people in our homes and in our workplaces and in our neighborhood and on our teams and at our schools and our families. And that we, like Paul, would just say, I, I want people to know this, to be gripped by this truth. It's an incredible book. And I pray that after these 14 weeks, you'll be drawn back to this book again and again and again. Stand as we close in prayer. Father, thank you for the truth and the wisdom, the matchless wisdom that you have put together this plan that it would allow us to be in your family, not from anything we've done, from God, by faith. May we live and keep in step with the Spirit as you continue your transformational work in our lives. And may we take this message of good news and bring it to anybody and everybody because that's what you long for. And pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. Hey, God bless you. Thanks for your grace this morning. If you'd like to hear about baptism, Pastor Bill will be out in the, uh, in the comments there. If you'd like prayer, our prayer team will be here in the front. I'd love to hug you and pray for you, but I don't think that'd be a good thing. Have a great afternoon. I love you. You're out of here.